We're doing a series in the book of Ruth. I believe we're on week number five um, on this series. It's clear back in the Old Testament story over 3,000 years ago. It's like, how can a story over 3,000 years ago relate uh, to us today? And the reason why we often think that stuff the Bible doesn't relate to us is something in the past is because we don't understand what's driving the Bible. We don't understand what the Bible is even about. If you're going to make a statement, what is the Bible about? Uh, it's about relationships. Jesus left heaven. He came to earth. He died. He rose so he could have a relationship with us. He then gives us two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And do what? And love others as himself. I mean, that's the extent of the Bible. So all the, way, all the um, pages of scripture is just shouting this relationship with these two laws that are taking place. Love God and love others. Now we're in the book of Ruth. It's all about relationship between, between people, between Naomi and Ruth. But also today we're going to talk about Ruth and, and Boaz as well. When you look at these um, relationship, it's amazing that God wants to proclaim who he is to us. And the way he does it is through relationship. So what happens is if you look at relationships here on earth, love relationships, even say a marriage relationship, uh, it's the same relationship that God wants to have with us. A connection, a deep connection, an intimate connection, a strong connection of love. And so we're looking at this story, and as we're looking at this story, there's going to be some romance in the story just to let you know, because... uh, Ruth is going to meet this guy named Boaz. But in the process of looking at this story, you see them get connected. And as you're watching them get connected, it's the same way that God connects with us. In fact, the end of the sermon, we're going to bring this relationship between Ruth and Boaz right into a relationship between us and God. The story of Ruth and Boaz, there's two things that are getting them connected that are like foundational in regards to relationship. And the thing is humility and grace. If you want to fix any relationship, if you want a great relationship, if you want an awesome foundation, humility and grace at the core of your relationship uh, will grow strong, will grow powerful. Humility and grace is at the foundation of all our relationships, should be. And humility and grace is the foundation of our relationship with God um, as well. So as we're looking at this, the name of the sermon is The Beauty of Humility and Grace. Uh, what does humility mean? This is what humility means. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not going, woe is me, I'm, I'm horrible. It's thinking of yourself less and others people more. That's what humility is as we're working on these words. And grace, grace comes in three different dynamics throughout the Bible. And I did a whole series on this, um, I think 2018 or 2019. Grace has an unmerited favor, a free gift, Grace has a power. Grace is working inside of me. Grace is driving me. And grace is also a cleansing aspect as well. When we're looking at the story of Ruth, you can get the taste of all of those that are there. You're going to get an unmerited favor. You're going to get the, the story of, of power. And you're also going to get the story of cleansing. So I, when we look through the story, I want to encourage you to, to watch the story and the thing take place in regards to, in regards to grace. So start out the story. We've got to give a little bit of background. So lots of suffering at the beginning. The story starts out with Naomi. Remember the book of Ruth, named after the Ruth, but Naomi is the one that starts the story out. Uh, she has a husband named Elimelech, and they're in the middle of Judges, and they go through a massive amount of suffering. The first piece, first wave of suffering they went through is that everybody did right in their own eyes. It was a political mess um, here for God's people, God's nation. 
Um, it was an economical mess. It was uh, um, rioting. It was, it was death. It was war. They're living in some tough, tough times. That's where the initial piece of suffering was. The second wave of suffering is that there's famine in the land. So bad that they ended up leaving Israel and they went to, to Moab, hopefully to find a better life, or at least to find food so they could survive. After they went to Moab, the suffering didn't stop. Elimelech ended up dying, so Nomi lost her husband. And as she had her two sons, luckily she still has a family. Well, those two sons married Moabite ladies, and they were married for 10 years, and then she lost her two sons. So you have one wave after suffering, after suffering, after suffering, and they get to the point where it's just her and her two daughter-in-laws, and who are her daughter-in-laws? They're Moabite ladies in a country that is not really her country. And so what's she going to do now that she's a widow? She's got to find life somewhere. And she's thinking the only way I could even have a chance at anything, even survival, would be go back to my home country, which would be Israel. So she left Moab, and she was walking on her way to Israel, and it's just given that her daughter-in-laws would follow her. They are Moabite ladies going to completely foreign, different country. So they're going to have it rough as well. Naomi will have it rough, but they'll even have it more rough as they're going into a foreign country. So as they're walking on this trail back, Naomi stops and says, you know, I'm going to a dead-end life. I don't want these two ladies to go into a dead-end life. I'll give them the opportunity to turn around and find a life. So she did. Orpah and Ruth. Orpah said, you know what, I will go back. So she went back to Moab. But Ruth said, I'm not going back to Moab. Where you go, I go. I'm committed to you, Naomi. And so Naomi and Ruth ended up going to um, Israel together. And then last week, we remember right when they walked into town, the whole town was what? They were stirred with excitement. It's like, oh, yes, Naomi is back. They didn't know Ruth because Ruth from Moab. They knew Naomi, they knew Elimelech, and they also knew the suffering that Naomi went through, losing her husband and also her two sons. So when everybody is celebrating at the city gates, um, does that make Naomi happy? Well, it makes her mad. Why does it make her mad? I mean, the reason why it makes her mad is because if you're suffering and you're hurting, the last thing you want is a happy person. And the really last thing you want is a happy town that's welcoming you. I'm so glad that you're back. So it's kind of just the last twist of the dagger into her heart. And she makes a comment to them and says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Marah because bitterness has completely consumed me. I left full and I came back empty. In fact, God brought me back empty. I left full and God is the one that even brought me back empty. And the whole town is witnessing her say this. Was she really empty? I mean, she has somebody next to her. Ruth is standing next to her. But Ruth, you know, what's Ruth? I mean, she's just a Moabite girl that is committed to Naomi. Well, we know at the end of the story that Ruth is, is everything. In fact, Ruth is Naomi's answer. But at this moment, they did not know that Ruth was Naomi's answer. So let's just pick up the story from there. We will start in Ruth 1, 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field, glean among the ears of the grain after him, 
in which whose sight I might find favor. I want to look at the structure of these three verses because you notice it starts in chapter 1 that I put down. And it's like, why don't you just start chapter 2? Because I want you to observe the structure. It's, it's not a very good flow in these three verses. In fact, the middle verse doesn't even fit. Why did they throw the middle verse in there? I mean, there's no reason why it should even be there. It flows a lot better if you just do 22 and then also do the 2. In fact, let's just read 22 and let's skip the middle verse and read 2. 22 says this, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears and grain after him, in whose sight I might find favor. That flows so much better. Instead, the author threw that other phrase in there. What was that phrase? Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of a clan of Elimelech, whose name was what? Boaz. Who cares about Boaz? I mean, who is Boaz? Everybody cares about Boaz. Somebody's going to start caring about Boaz. But right now, who cares about Boaz? What's going on with throwing that verse in there? Who wrote the book? Samuel wrote the book. He knows the end of the story. He knows the end of the story. And he knows right now that Ruth and Naomi's tides are going to start changing. They're going to start turning. So he gives us just a little flavor right there in the middle of the conversations that are taking place. And says, recognize this Boaz. You know the time when you speed read, you read the first sentence of every chapter. And, uh, and then you can understand the whole chapter with the first sentence. Well, this is the start of chapter 2. And, and the author, for Sam, or Samuel, just throws it out there. Hmm, keep your eye on this guy named Boaz. Story continues. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went to glean in the fields of the reapers. And she happened to come up to the part of the field belonging to who? Oh, there comes Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. You just said that already. You already said he was a clan of Elimelech. You see the structure? They're hitting Boaz, Boaz, as if Boaz is going to be something. Well, then all of a sudden they describe Boaz. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So Boaz comes to the scene, you know, prior before he comes to the scene, as mentioned. And then all of a sudden she shows up where? She shows up at Boaz. And then it says all of a sudden Boaz showed up. And I just love verse 4. What does it say? Behold, Boaz came to the scene. It's almost like, guess who showed up? (laughs) The savior of the world. I mean, it's just, it's just a, a huge explanation. This guy is going to make a difference. This guy is going to do something. And in the process of saying this guy is going to make a difference, what do they, description do they give Boaz? They give a description of how he talks to his employees. How does he talk to his employees? He says to his employees at the start of the day, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. And what do they respond? They respond say, the Lord bless you. Because if the Lord blesses you, the Lord blesses us. This is a statement of hased. That's the Hebrew word for the word bless. It's used twice here. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you. This is not just a good morning statement. It's hased. If you know Hebrew, it turns your eyes. It's like, whoa. They're saying hased. Well, what does hased mean? Hased means take every single attribute that God has and just land it on your shoulders. Every single attribute. I mean, there's not even an English word that describes that. Just wrap up all the attributes in one and just 
dump it on who? His co-workers. And then what do his co-workers do? They go, oh, take every single one of God's attributes and dump it on you. Sounds like a good boss. There is an introduction to who Boaz is. And then we're going to find a little bit about Ruth. Number five, verse five. Then Boaz said to the young man who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, she is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early in the morning until now, except for a short rest. We get a description of Ruth right here in one paragraph. But who do we get the description from? We get the description from Boaz's foreman. So Boaz's foreman is out there working with people, and this lady comes and works, and this foreman is keeping an eye on her. And as this foreman is looking at her, Boaz comes up and says, Who is that? And what does the foreman say? First thing she says, oh, it's a young Moabite woman who came with Naomi. Don't you remember yesterday? We're only talking about a 14-hour, 24-hour period. Don't you remember yesterday? The whole town showed up, and the whole town showed up. Everybody was stirred and excited to see Naomi home. And everybody knows the story because the town was there. And they're like, yeah, she wasn't really all that happy. And the person standing next to her was kind of just ignored as if she was the one that they focused on. But all of a sudden it clicks with Boaz and thinking, but I know Naomi's story. I know Naomi's story. She left to go to Moab and her husband died. And after her husband died, their sons married Moabite ladies and then they died. And then Naomi came back, but she did not come back alone. She came back with Ruth. Why? reason why is because there's sacrifice, there's commitment, there's character. All of a sudden, just with that simple statement, a character statement of literal, powerful, raw humility, that I will lay down my life so Naomi can live. I will, I will suffer as a result for Naomi. So, of course, that catches Boaz's eyes. That is the person that came back with Naomi. Well, if you think about it, though, is you have this foreman that is talking to Boaz, and he should have just kept quiet there. But the foreman takes the liberty to not only say she's coming back, or she's the one that came back with Naomi, but takes the liberty to kind of give a download of who he thinks she is. Almost in a sense that I want to tell you, Boaz, what's going on right here, right now. So the foreman continues. He could have just said, oh yeah, she's a young Moabite woman who come from, you know, who come from the country of Moab, and that should have been done, but she, he doesn't. He says this, she said, when she walked up on the scene, please let me glean. So the foreman says, yeah, yeah we're, we're working here. And as we were working, we had this lady come up behind us and said, do you mind if I glean? I want to ask for permission. Well, if you're going to glean, you don't have to ask permission. Because, because what, is, what is gleaning? Gleaning is something that God literally put in place for those who have nothing. In fact, gleaning is the welfare system back in the ancient days. What you do is you, you take all the grain, but you're not supposed to take all of it. And you're definitely not supposed to stop and go back and make sure that there's nothing left. And the reason why is because the widows will die. Those who have nothing will die. Those who have no status will die. The, the sojourners will die. I mean, it's, you need food left on the ground. 
We see this in Leviticus. This is the law of God. Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourners. I am the Lord your God. A command in Leviticus and also a command, the same command that takes place in Deuteronomy. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to give to those that are poor. And this is the way to do it. So, of course, Ruth has nothing, so she's there. It's kind of a step up from begging, uh, but it's pretty close. It's, well, let me just gather whatever I can possibly find. So there's an instant status that automatically goes if you are, if you are a beggar. Um, or if you have no money, you all of a sudden start to get behind uh, the reapers and start to pick everything up. So what happens is you get recognized, and uh, you can get tagged. You can get tagged um, as a nuisance. You already have a social class, economical class, but you can also get tagged as a nuisance. And the reason why is because, you know, sometimes these reapers, they get a little aggressive and go where they're not supposed to go. In other words, get more into the harvest and get in the way of the harvesters. And, and the harvesters have to push them away, push them back. But Ruth walks up and she says, do I have permission to glean? In other words, I'll, I'll stay in my spot. I just asking for permission. This is what the foreigner or the um, the the foreman said to Boaz. She asked for permission. A statement of complete humility. There's three more areas that show complete humility. It says, "Can I please glean and gather among the sheaves?" She says, "After the reapers." In other words, I will stay where I need to stay. I'm not going to be a nuisance to you, and I'm not going to try to go forward and take whatever I can get. I want to ask first, and I want you to know that I know where my position at it is behind the reapers, or the, the harvesters. So you guys go harvest, and just let me have the scraps. So think of Boaz when he's hearing this. She came with Naomi, and she didn't have to. And she is working in the field, being as kind as she possibly can. Can I Please, because I need something to do what? To feed Naomi. Can I please? And don't worry, I know my position, and I'll remain in my position. All I need to do is survive and make sure Naomi survives as well. Complete statement of humility. You see sacrifice. You see permission. You see after the reapers. And the other statement of humility is that she works like a dog. She continued from early morning until now, except for a short time. This is what the foreman's explaining to Boaz. He didn't have to explain it to her at all. But guess who's looking at her? The foreman's looking at her. Because she caught the foreman's attention. Boaz asks about her. And when Boaz asks about her, the foreman takes the liberty to let me just give you a full sermon who this girl is. She's absolutely amazing and completely recognizable as a result of what? One thing. Humility. Humility. The foreman noticed it and was described to Boaz. He noticed it as well. So Boaz responds to her in verse 8. Then Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to the young woman. Let your eyes be on this field, 
that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to your vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. If you look at this passage, there's a showering of grace that comes down from a powerful person. Remember who Boaz is? Boaz is the owner of the fields. He owns it all. He has all the status. He has all the power. He has all the control. And when he sees this humility, he responds with what? Speaking kindly to somebody he doesn't really need to speak kindly with because they're just a nuisance. That's what the reapers are. They're just a nuisance. He looks at her and says, my daughter, my daughter, giving her even a, a name as a sense that they're part of your family. First statement, my daughter. I mean, when you got the boss coming looking at you and you're not really thinking you're supposed to be there, I mean, the boss could have said anything. But he starts off with calming the entire situation. My daughter speaks kindly to her. The next thing he does, he elevates her status. He says, what? Go be my, by my women. I mean, when you own everything, you got all your employees out there, and you got some ladies that are employers out there as well. And what are they? They're a part of the harvesting team. All of a sudden, here, Ruth is a reaper. In a poverty level, in a poverty position, he says, don't be a reaper anymore. Go to my employees. With the other ladies, I hear part of my harvesting team just being showered automatically to her. He secures her provision. How does he secure her provision? He says, let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. All she needs is right here. Don't go anywhere else. You will be provided for, and Naomi will be provided for right here. This is where your provision is at. He doesn't stop with that. He also provides security. He charges his young man, don't you touch her. And there's even a, a, a play on words in the Hebrew that literally says, don't you touch her and make sure she is not touched by anybody else. Brings her security. He's responding aggressively to her, giving her grace, using his power to make sure she's taken care of. And then he provides protection, and we see that in the last part. When you're thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. What happens is that there's a well where um, everybody goes to get a drink. But the young men, you'll send them, and they'll grab a whole bunch of different water, and they'll pack the water back for a supply that is there at camp. But if you need a drink, you'd walk all the way back to the well. And what Boaz is saying, don't do that. I don't want you to walk all the way back there in front of everybody, everybody observing you. I want you to take what the water that the guys have drawn, and I want you to drink that. Work off of their labor. Use their labor. Don't leave this place whatsoever. So you have Ruth with a massive amount of humility, and then you have Boaz using his power with a massive amount of grace. And then Ruth responds, and she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should notice, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? When you look at these Words falling on your face is what? I know my position. I'm not even from this country. I'm not even from here. I'm not. I'm not. I know my position. 
I'm not a harvester. You put me into the harvester. I know, but I'm, I'm not. I know my position. I've fallen on my face. Is that statement that I've fallen on the face. But then is a statement of humility. But then she uses this, this other Hebrew compound word, take notice and foreigner. These two words are practically the same that would go into a sentence that should read, why do you notice me when I am someone not to be noticed? Why do you notice me when I'm somebody not to be noticed? Why do you recognize me when I'm somebody not to be recognized? I mean, boys, I, I don't understand. I mean, I'm, I'm not complaining, but I don't understand. And then what does Boaz do? He gives a description of why he recognizes her, and he says that in verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to, told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Let the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then Ruth said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you, are, you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You see, Boaz give an explanation of why he is given so much. But then you also see the humble Ruth give a response by saying, why have you comforted me? It's not talking about making me feel good. It's not even talking about protecting me. I don't even talk about all that you've done. What the comfort means in the Hebrew is that you change my personal, external circumstances. Why have you, why have you changed my circumstances? I mean, my circumstance in my life is, is here. Why are you changing my circumstances? That's what the word comfort is, is, is meaning. And as a result of you changing my, my circumstances, my situation, and providing for me the way that you've provided for me, it, you have spoken kindly, meaning that you've spoken to my heart. As a result of you doing that, you've spoken to my mind, you've spoken to my heart. Now, we can read this, and the writing is, is so rich because there's romance that is all through it. But where is the romance even coming from? Coming from the process of humility and grace. And so we read it, we are moved into a depth of relationship that is taking place literally in this passage before our eyes. Under the concept of humility... In grace. It's not attraction and lust. It's humility and grace, what every one of us are longing for. I want to look at this uh, concept of humility and grace and look into it a little bit further in our lives and also in uh, the relationship that we have with God. Look at Ruth's humility. What did she do? We'll see it in her notes. She lays down her life for Naomi, she seeks permission. She works with every strength she can possibly muster. She is overwhelmed with gratitude. She acknowledges her unworthiness, and she does it all for others. She's not thinking of herself less. She is thinking of them more, is what she's doing. She's looking at somebody else besides herself, and she's directed her entire life towards that direction. 
And it caused a massive attraction on the field that not just Boaz likes, the foreman likes as well. Because the foreman is the one that gives them the information. So she comes on the field literally shining. With what? With humility. Then the one in power sees that humility and responds this way. Boaz responds with grace. He provides, he protects, he welcomes, he serves, and he secures. Taking all of his power and moving it where? Moving it to the humble heart. Servants called the beauty of humility and the glory of grace. Number one, grace can only be given to the humble. You can't love someone who's obsessed with themselves. Because if you love someone who's actually obsessed with themselves, what happens? Well, then they just, they just use you. Everything that you give them is, is what they possess. They expect it. I mean, they just completely and entirely use you. But you can love somebody who is humble. Because the person who is humble says, I don't have it, and the love is what granting it to them. But if somebody carries arrogance, carries pride, you cannot give grace to that person. You cannot give grace to that person. Looking at the concept of God and us, can God give grace to somebody who doesn't really need anything? You can't. I mean, you can't give a gift to somebody who doesn't need anything. It takes humility to be able to connect with grace. When you start looking at our relationship with, with God, the first steps of salvation is what? First steps of salvation is, I am a sinner and I'm in need of a savior. <laughs> All of a sudden, what's going to happen? All the power in the world that God has can now offer grace. All the power in the world that God has in eternity can now just shower that person with grace. Why? Because the person has found out who he really is. Found out who they really are. I am a sinner in need of a savior. And then what's the gospel? Jesus left heaven. He came to earth. He died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Grace completely showered 2,000 years ago and ready to shower on any humble being that would be able to be receptive of it. That would want it. So you get believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe in what? Believe that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And God is ready to just dump the grace down. But what happens what happens if we're not humble? What happens if we're not humble? Letter A, a humble Savior and a proud sinner, they can't walk together. <laughs> it doesn't work. I mean, if you, if you own everything, if you're the King of kings, you're the Lord of lords, you, you need absolutely nothing, and you want to embrace somebody who has absolutely everything, it, it doesn't work. You, you don't get a walk together. And mostly, if Jesus has everything and he goes right to, to the cross and lays everything down, how can you unite a relationship? It can't be done. They can't walk together. And if there's anything that ever gets in trouble with our relationship with God, do you know what it is? It's our pride. It's our pride. We want position even over God. In fact, the way that we view God is extremely important. Because many people in this world view God as somebody who is not very nice. Somebody who is pretty ugly. Why? Because he doesn't give me what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. And therefore anger and frustration start 
going where? God's way. What is that that's pushing that? That's pride that is pushing that. And that's why the world doesn't like God. It's because God doesn't do it the way he should be doing it according to, according to me. But what did he give 2,000 years ago? <laughs> he gave us everything 2,000 years ago. It says, for God so loved the world, saying I loved means look back 2,000 years ago. This is how much I loved on the cross you right now. This is how much I love, because this is how much I gave. And as a result of seeing that, we don't even have to question God anymore, because it puts us in a position. It puts us in a position that, that I have nothing at all. But by that cross, God has now given me what? Everything. And it all comes down. Number two, grace can only be seen by the humble. We're going to take a test, and I want everybody to participate in the test if you can. It's, the questions are going to be easier. The questions are really easy. In fact, it's only one question, and it's a kind of an exercise. What we're going to do is we're going to show something on the screen, and, uh, and they'll explain to you what to do, but I'll even say it right before you do it. There's going to be a basketball, two basketballs with white shirts, and they're going to pass it to each other, and you need to count the number of passes that the white shirts pass. Okay, they'll give you directions as this goes. This is a test of selective attention. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? The correct answer is 15 passes. But did you see the gorilla? Raise your hand if you did not see the gorilla. And yeah, you have to be honest. All right. Yeah, my daughter showed me and I didn't see the gorilla either as I sat there and I counted. Uh, that example was given just for the concept of where our eyes are at determined what we believe. If our eyes are on us, if our eyes are on us, we don't even see the gospel, no matter how much is said. We don't even hear the gospel, no matter how much is said. Jesus left heaven, Jesus came to earth, and Jesus died. And yet, many people are like, well, I hate God because I don't get this, and I don't, God's not doing this for me, and God's not doing this for me. He's not doing, wait a second, what? God left heaven, he came to earth, and then he died so you can live. And the only one that can see that is the one that's broken by is the one that's humbled by it. But if there's pride by even these words being spoken, they, they don't hear it, even though it's right in front of their eyes. They don't hear it, even though it's right in front of our eyes. But that is a message that is supposed to change the world, that is designed to change the world, and that will change the world as a result of the power of it being spoken 
and the eyes that are open to it, and it's shattering the individual that hears it. Can't believe he did it. I cannot believe he did it. But the most amazing thing about the gospel is that he goes to the grave, he rises again, and we get alive and live as a result of it. So we don't mourn Easter. We celebrate it. I can't believe he did it. But boy, I'm sure glad he did because as a result, I get eternal life with him for eternity. Letter A, you'll never glory in God till God has killed the the glorifying of yourself. In fact, the amount that we exist to glorify ourselves just takes God and just puts him completely and entirely on a shadow. But the amount that we look at and say, God, I cannot believe what you've done to me, all of a sudden puts God on the throne and puts us in the the position that we need to be in for the purpose of have what? Grace being showered upon us. Letter three, grace could only be appreciated by the humble. Heard a quote somewhere, and I don't know who ended up quoting it, but it's, our father was Adam, our grandfather was dust, and our great-grandfather was nothing. We have no room for pride. <laughs> I'll read that again. Our father was Adam, the person who brought sin to the world. Our grandfather was dust. And our great-grandfather was nothing. We have no room for pride. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that piece? It, 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 it does. It, it shatters us. But where does it shatter us to? It shatters us to the depths of the grave that Jesus was buried in. The depths of the grave that Jesus was buried in. But then what took place? Three days later, what happens? Jesus is alive, therefore, as a result, we can be alive as well. I had a conversation in the foyer um, with uh, a couple people last week. And uh, as I was having this conversation in the foyer, it was uh, uh, two individuals and their adult daughter that was there as well. In fact, it was you guys. (laughs) As I was having this conversation in the foyer, uh, they were talking, Mike, we haven't figured out if your cup is half empty or if your cup is half full. Because every once in a while, you're just like, oh, I can't believe I'm a sinner. But then you always walk around happy. I can't believe I'm a sinner. But then you always walk around happy. And the, the adult daughter said something she, that was so profound. And she says, Mike, I don't think your cup is half empty or half full. I think you're just happy you have a cup. <laughs> I'm like, that's right. I can't believe I have a cup. Because as a result of having a cup, guess what? I get to live for eternity. I mean, just what we have in Christ is absolutely everything. Yes, he died, and I can go to the grave with him, but he rose again, so I can't remain there. You consistently have to come out and keep that joy on your face. A proud person complains that they have no more. A humble person wonders why they have so much. It's not what we can get from God. It's what God has already given to us 2,000 years ago. And what is that gift? It is salvation. We all know that one day we're going to have absolutely nothing. What do you mean you're going to have absolutely nothing? And it says in Job, naked you've come into this world and naked you will what? Will leave. As a result of leaving, you will leave absolutely with nothing. Unless you have Jesus. (laughs) Then you'll leave with absolutely everything. We like the story of Ruth because it's a, a love story. But it's connecting, actually, it's connecting us with a love relationship with Jesus Christ. It's connecting to us with the love relationship of Jesus Christ. 
Number four, we are more apt to choose power, position, or arrogance over grace, and that's why we're so miserable. The greatest thing in the world we can possibly have, possess, is grace. Because what is grace? Grace is given all your power, all your glory, all your beauty, and handed it to somebody that doesn't deserve it. That's exactly what God has done to us. We see this story on a micro scale in the book of Ruth. Here Ruth was, completely and entirely humble. In a position, she knew her position. It's like, yeah, I'm not from Israel. I'm not one of your clan or one of your tribes. I'm, I'm, I'm from Moab. Yeah, I do not have a job and I do not have a husband and I do not have wealth and I'm economically really not fit to really be around this place. I know where I'm at, but even as I know where I'm at, I'm doing it for somebody else because I want this person to live. Massive amount of humility. And Boaz does what? He recognizes it and showers all of his power, what? Towards the direction of Ruth. Towards the direction of Ruth. The statement what God wants to do with every single person in this room. Understand your position. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a savior. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, meaning I will take every, he will take everything of his and shower it on you. It's a message of the Bible. It's all about relationship. Thick relationship. Strong relationship. Powerful relationship. Thank you, God, for the gift of salvation. Something we haven't earned. It's something we don't deserve. It's something we should not even have as a result of us being sinners. God, you left heaven, you came to earth, you lived a perfect life, you died and you rose again, and as a result, we can believe in you and be saved. God, I just pray that we'll just revel in that gift, that we'll just think about that gift, we'll meditate on that gift. God, is a gift that gives us life when we should not have it. Thank you for paying the price for our sins. Help us to love you for it. In Christ's name, amen.